Trinidad is known for producing a plethora of things that have come to define both its culture and the culture of the wider Caribbean. Trinidad is also known for sending both scholarly and creative people out into the wider world. Mika Cooper Edwards is one of those persons. She cannot be described by just one of the aforementioned, for she is the perfect combination of scholar and creative. Mika Cooper Edwards is the definition of discipline. After successfully completing her undergraduate degree at Howard University, where she was a student athlete, she moved on to lead marketing teams for several of the world's top brands. Mika, you see, is a dreamer. However, unlike many, she is laser-focused, and more importantly, she is an executor. People dream of working for one large brand during their lifetime. Mika's resume reads like an all-star list of global companies. She has worked for and led marketing teams for Nike, Brand Jordan, Diageo, Frito-Lay, Cadbury, Kraft, and Moy Hennessy. After years of rising among the corporate ranks, the London School of Economics graduate decided to build her own powerhouse company. With an army of well-qualified and experienced professionals by her side, Mika has created Soleil Entertainment, a company with the potential to completely rewire the culture and practices within the film industry. While she appreciates the lessons and relationships earned from the corporate world, Mika has her sights set on a bigger purpose. Soleil is a multi-dimensional, multi-platform company that will introduce the world to creatives who prior to this had little or no chance of being discovered because of the crowded spaces that exist in the world of visual media. Mika Cooper Edwards is a pioneer. She contributed ideas and allowed some of the world's top brands to see themselves from a different perspective. Now she is about to do the same to you, and you, and you, by changing the way you think about and view visual media. This is the story, thus far, of Mika Cooper Edwards. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. is a producer and marketing exec and a few other things. Mika Cooper Edwards, welcome to Planet 30. Thank you. It's very good to be here. Glad to have you. Thanks for having me. Now you grew up in Trinidad. How did that inform your love for arts and media? Huh. Um, Trinidad is a place that is very complex. Um, and there were there was a you know a lot of different racial, I should say, ethnicities, um, religions, different cultural influences that came together um, in Trinidad. And that was kind of inherent of, of how we lived, you know. Um, and it, was, it wasn't until I, I moved to the U.S. that I was, I realized that it was not common that people live together in that way and celebrated each other's cultures in that way. Um, 
And so my love for media really came a little later because I went into like a business business career track. But the fundamental love that I did have was a love for, for, for multiculturalism and for cultural exchange. And so that was what underpinned my desire to get into media because I saw a very dire um, imbalance in the global media landscape where certain cultures and certain countries weren't being represented and, and stories weren't being told from our part of the world in the Caribbean as well as, you know, places like Africa, India, where they're big, they're big industries, but the the stories went across the pond, um, and so that that inspired my my willingness to go into media and start producing because I saw that those gaps existed, um, and so this was my second career, coming from the business world, and making that argument from a global marketing standpoint, and now making it from a global media standpoint. So, hopefully that answers the question. It wasn't a direct like, oh, I grew up two years old, I knew I wanted to make a film. It, was, it wasn't like that. It was almost like an ethos that led me, that, that, that became a universal thread to everything that I did. And, you know, it, it, it manifested really well in the media mm-hmm. side of things. So, so what was the dream initially? If it wasn't media, like where did you picture yourself when you were growing up, when you were chasing that business dream? You know, it's so funny because every every year I think I had a different dream. So like going growing up in Trinidad, I played sports. I actually played volleyball for Trinidad. I was on the junior national team, the senior national team. Um, and so at one point I wanted to be an Olympian. <laughs> at one point I used to see women dressing, you know, like, at the bank where they'll have these nice suits on and uniforms. And I was like, oh, I want to do business. Had no idea what that meant, right? But um, so there wasn't really, um, at one point I wanted to be a diplomat. Um, mm-hmm. But I knew I knew that everything, everything was, you know, kind of culminating towards wanting to have a global experience. Um, but then later on, once I kind of came close to university and that type of thing, it started to crystallize that I wanted to be in the sports industry. I wanted to work in sports in some capacity because I was an athlete and I loved, you know, I love basketball. I love tennis. I love football. Um, so that was something that I wanted to do. And then I had a, 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 a very creative upbringing as well. So outside of the sports um, my sisters and before I got very serious with volleyball, we danced ballet. I used to do art all the way to the CXC level. Um, so there was a very creative side of me as well, and that's where the love for marketing kind of started to spark. And so those things really came together, and the media aspect of it came a little later on once I I did my master's and studied Nigerian film in particular for my thesis and realized that okay this is this is this is a place where I feel all of those different influences could come together. Mm -hmm. Are there any media campaigns in particular that had an impact on you growing up sort of like yo that's what I want to do you know? Mm -hmm. 
Um, Michael Jordan. I think it was the Johnny Levin. Uh-huh. Yeah, Johnny Levin commercial where he was. It would have been the, the Levin. The 11, the 12, or the 13. I need to remember which shoe that was, but he was based, you had like a woman run, you know, people were going about their daily lives and they showed that life, like life literally stopped and everybody around the world would freeze watching him dunk the ball on TV. And that, I thought that was the best ad I'd ever seen. Mm. Um, I mean, there are others, right? There's so many John commercials that you could, <laughs> that you could point you gotta to. Gotta shoes. Yeah, you know, um, that was like on, on the earlier side of it no, with of Spike Lee and yeah. Mars Blackburn and Mars all Black. of that. But I think that, you know, later on, like around the time of the journey, like one around Space Jam and around all of that, was when I was able to appreciate the art of advertising, you know, in a more mature way. Um, and that was really, that, that ad always stood out to me. Um, unfortunately, it was a little bit, you know, um, meant to be. It seems like that, you know, that was my favorite ad on TV. And I ended up working for the Jordan brand, which was which was kind of like a dream come true, <laughs> um, connecting those dots. Right, right. Before we so, – because I, I do want to dive into, into your work experience in marketing. You have a phenomenal <laughs> – you have a, a sort of dream list of jobs. Some people get one. You, you've had such uh, <laughs> many companies that, that people dream about. But we have the same uh, alma mater. Tell, tell me about your experience at Howard University. Oh, my gosh. Howard is might be the best, one of the best decisions I've ever made. I would say definitely the best professional decision because it underpinned. It underpins so many things that were to come. I mean, people may look at later in your resume and say, oh, you did this, you did that. But everything really attributes back to Howard. Um, Coming from the Caribbean, um, I didn't know a lot about Howard until it was really time for me to start looking into schools. And I was looking at Ivy League schools, you know, which is what everybody kind of, you know, they tell you about the Harvards and about Columbia. And so I was I was doing applications to those schools, got accepted to some, then get a scholarship. And then I was learning more about the HBCUs and particularly Howard and realized that Eric Williams went there, who is, for people who don't know, he was Trinidad's um, first prime minister mm-hmm. and the person that led us to independence. He so taught, he's kind he's, of... He's taught there too. He taught, well, he taught there. He didn't, he was not a student there, but he taught there. I think he went to Oxford and, and some other places in the UK and he taught at Howard. And there's a legacy of Caribbean, you know, scholars. academics mm-hmm. and scholars, yes, who went to that school. But then also seeing that people like Debbie Allen went to that school growing up dancing ballet. She was a big fan of hers. Felicia Rashad, you know, even Diddy for his couple of years hustling on the yard, like you know, these are these are um, these are people. You know, it, it, there was a real legacy there that drew me in, and that's when I I said, okay, no, this is where I want to be. Um, and I remember that the mantra that they had put forward was leadership for America and the global, and the global community. community yeah. And that was very. It, it spoke to me a lot, right? Because it was always. A, a dream of mine to be a global leader in whatever facet of life that I chose. And stepping onto Howard's campus, 
that that came to life because you had people from all over the black diaspora you know people from africa people from the caribbean people from different parts of the u.s people from europe um coming all coming together and learning about each other's culture in a way that we would have never been able to experience before and there was that standard of excellence and it was also nurturing which is something that had I gone to Penn, for example, that was probably, if I had gotten this scholarship, you know, on the Ivy League side, I would have gone to Penn, right? Had I gone there, I look back and I'm like, thank God I didn't go there, (laughs) you know, Um, because it would have been a very different experience and we were allowed to grow and we were allowed to develop and really learn from each other and enrich each other. And I, I, I would never ever forget that experience anybody who went to Howard if I meet them in in my you know in my career path now it's an automatic instant credibility yeah Yeah. credibility and connection because you went there and that's a unique experience that only we would understand and we celebrate it every time we meet people from that school um I also, while I was Howard, I, I did a study abroad in France um, at the Collège International de Cannes. And mm. that was during the Cannes Film Festival. And that really opened up a lot of my, you know, expo- it was my first exposure to a film festival. So not a bad film festival to start I with. Know. <laughs> um, <laughs> And we worked at the film festival. We were translators um, at the red carpet, at Amphar events, that type of thing. And so that was really a, a great, you know, eye-opening experience. Even though it, but how it made that possible, right? Um, and I could I could go on and on about all the things that <laughs> Howard did. But you know, playing volleyball there was a really interesting experience. Being part of the school of business, that was a really really great kind of foundation of training you for the business world and exposing us to fortune 500 companies at a at a young age we would not have experienced that otherwise so there's just a lot that i have to thank howard for um and i carry it with me you know in everything (laughs) It's, it's it's dear to my heart indeed indeed now speaking of your marketing experience in fortune 500 companies you're, uh, and, and I'm just going to name a few, the Jordan brand, Diageo, Moe Hennessy, Cadbury, Kraft. You've kind of got the who's who <laughs> in huge companies under your belt. Tell us about your some of your experience and experiences. Yeah, um, so the Nike experience actually came about when I was still at Howard. Um, and they were recruiting through the NCAA for student athletes to do internships at Nike, summer internships. So I had applied, because I was playing volleyball for Howard at the time, so I had applied and got accepted to do my first internships. I did two internships there before going full-time, and the first one was in brand marketing. The second one was with the Jordan brand. Um, and then I went full-time into Nike basketball. But between, in my senior year, I was doing like field activation. So there was a year when Jordan sponsored Howard, um, Howard Homecoming. 
uh, you know, and I had to leave that, that, that was my idea. And, uh, and as a result, I had to execute that whole campaign on campus. Um, so that was really kind of my entry point into Nike. And then once I got into Nike, my first role at basketball was um, product marketing, which meant that you were kind of the quarterback um, of the of the product creation process, and you were the marketing voice and the voice of the consumer within that triad of design, marketing, and development to bring the product to fruition. And you would also work with the regions, um, U.S. and international, to to basically form what that collection would be each season. You work with the athletes, etc. But I had a very special. <laughs> Um, entry point because there was a new role that was called promo um, product creation and that was the person who would work with the NBA athletes, WNBA NCAA etc and you would be responsible for their on-court footwear which was customized for them it wasn't the same as what went to retail so I had to work with all of the all of the athletes um, and work with all of their agents and sports marketing. <laughs> and so you're coming in at like this young age. I was the youngest on the team. I was the only black woman on the team. One of two women on the team as well. The only person from from another country at the time. So it was really a, a, a baptism of fire and very exciting at the same time. You know, um, and the lights were pretty bright because you were dealing with with these top athletes. And so if you made a mistake, the lights were bright. If you did something really well, all your wins, the lights were bright on that too, right? So I had to grow up pretty quickly um, and really step up and step into that role. And then I also worked with the international regions a lot. So I dealt a lot with Europe and Asia, Um and that kind of came full circle. So I had a few roles at Nike. And the last role that I had came full circle because I, um, during my internship, I had done a project on the international expansion of the Jordan brand. Because at the time, Michael Jordan was retiring for the second time. So it was his final retirement. And the brand was trying to figure out what was his, you know, what's the future of the brand if yeah. MJ is no longer on the court. And so I, I did this, this presentation, a lot of research and all of that. And that was actually what I think was able to impress people. And I formed certain relationships that allowed me to come back full time. Um, but it came full circle that I ended up in my third role at Nike. I ended up heading up the international footwear business for Brad Jordan <laughs> in, that fi- wow. in that last role. Yeah. And that was, it was really like a dream come true because, um, and so ironic. And so I was traveling and working in all over the world um, because at the time the brand had not dedicated the same amount of resources to the international team as they did to the U.S. because the business was still growing internationally. So it was three of us that had the entire rest of the world and a hundred people that had the U.S. region. And so we were on a plane all the time. (laughs) Um, 
I would be up early in the morning to talk to talk to Europe and up late at night to talk to Asia. You know, it was really intense but an amazing experience because that's when I was able to really form a lot of relationships in these countries. So that was the Nike experience. Um, and then I went back to Trinidad. So the Diageo, Kraft, all of those brands, um, that actually came through working for some of the bigger, well, the biggest distributors in the Caribbean when I returned to Trinidad. And we had the exclusive distributorships for those brands. And oh. so it was very interesting because you were dealing with, you know, you're going from more of a global type of setup where, you know, you're, you're at the headquarters of that brand and now you're on the other end of it, the territory end, as, as we would say, where you are engaging with all of these principles um, from all over the world and from, you know, for all these different major brands. So it was a very different experience because now you're looking at a full collection of, of, of top FMCG brands that you are responsible for amplifying in that local market. Um, and so, yeah, you know, there, there are a few more, you know, brands there, but Diageo was a big one. Um, Kraft was a big one. Mondelez was a big one. A big part of the business that we managed. If I may ask, why did you decide to leave Brand Jordan and return to Trinidad? Yeah, it was a few things happening. So there was a reorg at Nike. So this was now in 2008, 2009. There was a global financial crisis, and so yeah. Nike was was doing a lot of real. A lot of companies were, were you know cutting jobs, reorganizing, etc. I was fortunate because I was in that reorg. I was offered a new role, um, so I wasn't being let go, which was good. <laughs> but um, the role that I was offered, it was actually a really exciting opportunity on paper. Um, it was to to head up uh, U.S. merchandising for urban footwear, for women's urban footwear, which at the time was just, that, that was one of the hot places to be in the company, right? Mm. Um, but I really, I got tired of living in Portland. I was so away from my, I was away from my family and I, having the Jordan rule where you're traveling all over the world and all of that, that justified being in Portland because I didn't have to be in Portland all the time. <laughs> you know, I would be, I would be like out, and then Portland was just a, a nice safe haven to come back, rest, and you go again. But that new that U.S. role that was being offered meant I would be in Portland all the time, and I really did not want to be on the U.S. side of the business. I wanted to stay on that international global marketing path. Um, so. From a Nike perspective, that that's what drove that decision. But then also on a personal level, my father, um, who owns a company called Panland Trinidad and Tobago Limited, it's the largest manufacturer of steel pans um, in the world. I, yeah, in the world. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, and this is a company that he had started and built um, over... At the time, it would have been 20 odd years. And he wanted help. He wanted 
you know, his kids to come and get involved in the company. Um, and he saw that there was need for my skill set. So he, he, he had been in my ear for a little while, but, um, <laughs> you know, he had good timing that time. Um, and he knew that I was kind of on the fence of whether to stay in Oregon or not. And so all those things came together. And that, that was actually the role that I moved to Trinidad to do was to head up sales or marketing for that company. And so you moved back to the States again, or did you go right into Soleil? So, interestingly enough, when I moved back to Trinidad, that was when I started the first iteration of Soleil, which was basically a travel company at the time. What we were doing, so, of course, Trinidad Carnival, anybody from Trinidad will tell you, if you haven't experienced it, you have not lived. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) I would bring, you know, friends to Carnival and show them a good time and it would be so transformative to them and so I I had always had the idea in fact my brother and I had entered a business plan competition my senior year at Howard it was it was by the the small business association the USSBA um in Orlando and they had this this big contest you know for for business plans and we had to go and pitch the idea and the idea was was this company was to have a travel company that basically curated all-inclusive experiences to Trinidad Carnival and package that and then would offer that on a mass uh, on a mass scale and so we won the competition to our surprise <laughs> we won the competition got you know some money got some software etc and then I got the offer to to, to go to Nike so right. that got parked yeah, that got parked. So once I went, once I went back to Trinidad, it kind of revived that that idea, and I said, okay, let's try doing this. And so I had a business partner in New York, and we basically did for five years. We we did um, premium travel experiences, and we focused. We did a lot of work with the top business schools, so um, Wharton, Columbia, Duke. Berkeley, um, Harvard Business School, where those students would have these big groups and they had these these trips that they called treks. And so our experience, our package experience became trek offerings for, for these MBA programs. Oh, and so you would yeah, and so you would have like groups coming. We had professional athletes come. Um and so that happened for a few a few years. Um I think it was ahead of its time mm-hmm. because now you have a million people doing, or as uh, uh, some people tell me, they're trying to do what you guys did. <laughs> um, but, you know, at the time, there was we were the only ones doing that. And the industry wasn't quite ready for it, um, to be frank. So that, that was kind of the original... Um, existence of Soleil and it was always the underpinning of it was always to to illuminate culture and for cultural exchange and for people to come and experience and understand each other's culture and we always had ambitions to do media around those experiences Um, and so it was interesting that 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 kind of took on 
you know, its own life um, from a media standpoint once I, I decided to switch to that industry and go and study that industry. So to answer your question on whether I moved back to the U.S., I actually, once I had gone to Trinidad um, and I worked in corporate Trinidad and, you know, as you mentioned, I worked on all these big brands. So it felt very much like I had run the gamut in terms of what I wanted to learn in the marketing sphere. And I also was seeing what was happening in media. I was obsessed with it. I was, you know, starting to self-study the industry because I saw that there were these gaps in representation, both at the local level and at the global level. So you have filmmakers from Trinidad who whose films Trinidadians do not see, right? right. And you have you have films from Nigeria, which is a huge industry, um, produces more films than Hollywood. And Nollywood. you have yeah, exactly. And you have people from the African diaspora in the West that, that don't see these films. Um, and so I decided to, to, to leave um, corporate marketing and go back to school, quit my job, cold turkey. And my husband and I moved to London. And that's when I did my master's in media. Um, and that was the beginning of my media career. Interesting. Interesting. Now, one of the things you've stated is that you'd like to impact culture. What does that look like to you? I think it's a few levels. It's first on a, on a local level, particularly for diasporas in the West, diasporas of the Global South. And when we say the Global South, that refers to Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Caribbean, the Middle East, the developing world, um, so to speak. Mm-hmm. For for the for the Western diasporas of these countries, of these countries of origin um, or ancestry, I should say, these we we don't understand a lot about ourselves um, as Africans living in Trinidad or even as Indians living in Trinidad, or even as African-Americans living in the U.S., there's a lot about our ancestral home, and there's a lack of connection between the communities in the West and the communities you know, in, in these global South regions. And so the, the, on a fundamental level is to help us understand ourselves. And then beyond that, through representation is to help us understand each other. So it would be for people to be more exposed to different cultures in an authentic way um, and that the representation in the media will be a lot more authentic than it is now. In some cases, it will exist when it doesn't even exist now. That will really challenge people's perceptions defy a lot of stereotypes about people from these parts of the world and what our experiences are. And the hope is that we would have a much a much more intercultural exchange that would benefit us just on a humanity level and a cultural appreciation level. And that then has so many different implications, you know, um, especially now where there's so much conversation around closing borders to each other and 
you know, labeling certain groups of people a certain way, the education is, is really important and it's not being taught in schools. So I felt like media was a vehicle to, to really illuminate and, and bring bring awareness and, and a lot clearer understanding of, of these cultures to the fore. Indeed. What was the specific inspiration behind uh, Soleil Entertainment? Well, the media side of, of, of it, as I mentioned, that we the original Soleil was a travel company. Um, but I think Soleil brings together a few different influences uh, uh, over my life. Like when people ask what inspired it, which I know is kind of a common founder question right, right. <laughs> i kind of i kind of chuckle at that because i i always think to myself my whole life inspired so you know like growing up in this multicultural environment in trinidad and you know being confronted with the shock of what exists in the u.s or what exists in france or in the uk um and wanting to to show people that this this is possible, right? That that global understanding and global exposure is possible and a very equitable and representative media landscape is possible. That argument of globalism, so to speak, is an argument that I have been making at every stage of my life. You know, even at Nike, I remember being on the international side of the business and, you know, always making the argument that the global opportunity was even bigger than the U.S. opportunity, that right. these parts of the world had a lot to offer and that, they, and that they deserve resources and they deserved investment and the athletes from those parts of the world had their own fan base that we weren't tapping into. Um, and then fast forward to, you know, going back to Trinidad and Soleil, the travel company, it was, it was an argument that I felt I had been making and I still am making um, from the media perspective. And the other thing, the other thing I would say is that another influence would be just seeing how the media landscape has been dominated by a few countries. And with that comes, so those few countries will be, the, you know, US, maybe Canada, Europe, Australia. And that those those influences and those images are primarily white images, and the rest of the world is 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 really excluded from what's seen in the global mainstream media, and that has a lot of fundamental implications, right? Um, in terms of how we perceive each other and how we perceive the rest of the world, so I think. Those two things combined with just my love of wanting to share culture, share my culture and learn about others' culture. Those things all kind of coalesce into Soleil and what it represents and what it's meant to do. Can you explain how Soleil functions in terms of what it does for the artists that you represent or the projects? Expand on that a little bit for us. Sure. Um, so we're a film, media, and television production company. Sorry, film, TV, and branded content production company. Um, and what we, we, the media company was founded in 2017. And that was really the end of a film that we, um, a feature film that we were working on around a Nigerian Winter Olympian 
um, she was the first to compete in that sport um, and the first African, first woman, first African, first Nigerian to compete in this sport called Skeleton. And so that was kind of just the entity under which we were executing this, this film. Um, Nike actually had part sponsored that project. And so where we evolved to is, and now we have a full slate of, of projects that we're developing. I think the last count was about 16 projects. Um, wow. And we have, a, yeah, we have a core team of four people. So there's myself. We have a lead producer for, for Unscripted. We have someone who leads on the branded content side based in LA. And then we have someone that does audience insights and manages the editorial side, which is where the podcast falls. Um, and so what we, what we do is on a project basis, we then hire and curate actually teams for each individual project from a producing and crew standpoint. Um, and so that's, it's an independent model, right? And so each project dictates a different construction um, of crew versus the network. So people who aren't familiar, the networks have their executives and they work across. They would also hire people, of course, but they have the same central team working across everything. Um, we are a little more customized because it, every project that we work on is tailored to a different culture a different part of the world you know and mm -hmm. we feel like it's really important to have that representation be accurate behind the camera in front of the camera um and so that's kind of how we approach the business um the you know we're, we're moving towards having our own studio and that is where a lot of our branded content will continue to be tuned out um because that will demand you know, a certain kind of footprint in terms of physical resources. Um, but some of the bigger projects that we have on the feature side and series side, we have big co-production partners um, that we're working with on some of those. And so in those cases, we would use their post-production resources. Um, the goal is to eventually have all of that in-house. But yeah, that's how we're set up Got right now. So from my understanding... Um, I'm a filmmaker. I come to you. Things you're able to help co-produce whatever project it is that I have uh, within the arena that you've created. Yeah, so th that th there's a mix. So most of the projects that we have are projects that we concepted ah, internally. Okay. Yeah, internally, and so from beginning to end. We, particularly on the unscripted side, on the narrative side, we're heavier on the side of their filmmakers who would bring projects to us and ask us to come on board, um, whether it's on a co-production level or even to executive produce projects and help package them um, and that type of thing. So it, it varies, you know, when, when it's our IP, that we've developed from scratch, then we would curate that team and hire the producer, the director that we think is the right fit, you know, to lead that project forward. But all of the development happens internally. When it's someone else's project and they bring it, 
then it becomes a co-production between Soleil and that production company. Excellent, excellent. Understood. I love, I love, I just love the concept and the, uh, and so far the execution. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> well, most of our stuff is still to, is still in development or in production, so I'm so eager to get to the point where I'm doing these interviews and people could go see the work right away. But we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> Well, can you uh, tell us a little bit about some, I mean, you, I know you can't let the cat out of the bag completely, but can you tell us a little bit about some of the uh, film projects that you are working on, the television and film projects, actually? Yeah, um, there. I, I could disclose more on the narrative side because those are projects that um, were done as pilots. Like, the pilots have been shot and went into the festival circuit and now we're working with those filmmakers to adapt them into feature films or series. So one of them is called The Deliverer. Um, the director of that is Paul Price, mm-hmm. who is a Trinidadian um, actor and now director-producer as well. You could add that to his list of titles. Um, and this film had won... It was, he, shot the, he shot the short version, and that had won the Caribbean Tales pitch competition in Toronto Film Festival... I think it was 2018 or 2017. And now we're working on adapting that to a full feature film. Um, So that's been really exciting. Um, And that project is about, it brings together a few things, but it's basically inspired by, for for, for Trinidadians or people in the Caribbean may be familiar. Um, There's a notorious drug lord called Dole Chady, who in the 90s was hanged in Trinidad. Um, and then there's also an environmentalist called Wayne Kublau Singh who went on a hunger strike, I think circa 2009, 2010, as a protest to the government at the time um, for building, a, a, I think it was an aluminum smelter or a highway. Well, he had protested a lot of things, but I think at this instance was a highway that was running through a village and he went on a hunger strike and got the government to reroute the highway. Um, and so Paul brought these two characters together. Um, and so the story of the deliverer is a fisherman who is on a hunger strike and is protesting the construction of an oil refinery in his village in South Trinidad. And on one of his fishing trips, he goes out and he discovers a Venezuelan refugee in a boat. She's like close to death and he takes her and rescues her, brings her back to life. And it turns out that she is a ex-Chavista who has deflected, also ex-military, and has like very serious drug connections. And so she's desperate to go back to Venezuela and save her children um, and needs money to do that. And he needs money to, to bribe, well, to pay the bribe to the corrupt politician to save this village. And they decide to traffic drugs between Trinidad and Venezuela to meet their goals. So that one is a really exciting. Um, that is one hell of a story. <laughs> it is, it is. It's really exciting. Um, and there's another one that we're doing called Lodgers. That's a TV series um, by a British Nigerian filmmaker based in London, and he did this pilot episode about, it's a comedy, 
and it's about a Nigerian professional Nigerian couple that migrates to the UK for the first time um, and gets confronted with a post-Brexit UK situation and all of the all of the realities that immigrants face once they move to the developed countries and realize that their qualifications aren't being valued, that nobody knows what school they went to, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they have to they have to stoop to conquer. But they come in with this very arrogant attitude because they've done so well in Nigeria and they're expecting to conquer London, and you know they're confronted with this. And this one is starring um, a guy called. Ayo Makun, they call him A.Y. He's, he's, you could call him the Kevin Hart of Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's a huge star there, um, and he's the lead actor for that. So those are those are two on the on the scripted side that I could talk about. Exciting uh, stuff, though. <laughs> yeah, it's really exciting. Tell us about your new podcast. Oh, okay, I'm excited about that. Um, so Soleil Spotlight was basically we, we wanted to do a few things um, with this. Firstly, you know, anyone who knows film and TV production, you're talking about a life cycle of two to three years from when you concept the project to when it actually gets released. Um, two years if you're lucky. Um, and so we wanted to have a more current touch point with our audiences um, and we felt like it was important for us to kind of create create a platform around the content that we were creating on the film TV side. And so the podcast was an idea to do that, um, where we would showcase content creators as well as industry movers and shakers from the Soleil parts of the world, right? So from the Caribbean, Africa, Latin America, Asia, um, the Middle East, um, you know, whether it's directors, producers, industry executives, agents in some of the key agencies, we have a couple of those coming up that we're really excited about, um, who belong to this global South diaspora and walk through their experience you know their life experience and how they've come to where they are and what you know also showcase their work um because audiences may not have been aware of of these titles before so we really want it to be a a cultural discovery um and a trip around the world you know in a way (laughs) through through the different film entertainment industries um and we launched this just a few weeks ago, so it's pretty new. We had two two Trinidadian filmmakers. The second person is also a film festival director and curator. And then the third guest that we will have is a filmmaker from India that will release this week. Next, we have someone from Nigeria, one of the top production companies in Nollywood. Um, the head of that, he's going to be with us. Um, so yeah, we, we're 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 lining up a really good cadence of, good, of guests. Good stuff. Yeah. I have not yeah. finished the second episode, but I listened to the first one. Oh, nice! You did. <laughs> I did. Very nice. Yeah. Very enjoyable. Did you enjoy it? Very enjoyable okay, and informative. I, I will say. I'm glad. What does what does success look like for Soleil Entertainment? Like in terms of your ten, fifteen, twenty year plan. You know, uh, what does success look like at the end of that time? 
Well, we would have had um, some really major releases um, from the slate in film, TV, and then we would have, you know, really lined up a very strong kid, you know, very strong cadence of, of clients on the branded side. Um, because I didn't speak too much about that, but on the branded side, what we really want to do is some of the global brands that are looking to deepen their diversity discourse in the West and also tap into new markets, we want to bring our cultural competence to them, right? Um, and branded content is a space that's really exploding, but people don't really know how to go about it. Um, so that's something that we are really, you know, pushing hard on and we have some some really great high potential clients that we're working with right now. Um, and so, you know, I would say in 10 to 15 years, we would have had upward of 40 titles released. Um, we work on a two-year cycle. So this first slate of 15 pro 16 projects, you know, should release by 2022 to 23, some in fall of 2021. Um, and then beyond that, especially, at the, and this is the goal of the editorial side of it, is to really create a, a destination and that we are the pre preeminent destination for content from these parts of the world. And that we, through that, we're able to achieve a strong presence that we're able to, not just through our own productions, but help filmmakers to get the resources that are on par with what, you know, the white male filmmakers will get in the U.S. that would really, really justify and really um, maximize the potential of their creative um, because that's one of the big gaps is that, you know, who gets funded and who gets the access and who gets the distribution and who gets the festival selections. Yeah, so who gets the access, who gets the festival selections? So, you know, we want to be that name in the global industry that we are the go-to destination for this type of content, premium content from these parts of the world, as well as for you know, every, everything from a thought leadership perspective of what's happening in, in this space, um, highlighting creators, you know, being thought leaders in terms of the evolution of the industry and the issues that are highlighted by the content, that we want to be that number one resource for audiences and for filmmakers alike. Excellent. Do you ever touch the creative side of things? Yeah. Um, <laughs> as a writer as, or, you know? Well, I did write, um, I started writing a narrative project um, that's actually an Indian-American narrative. Okay. Um, but my preference is to, as a producer, you are involved in the creative a lot. It's yes, something indeed, a lot of people indeed. don't realize. Indeed, so yeah. I think, you know, you're involved in the creative you're not the person driving the creative, but you are the, the ideal is for you to be a partner with the director to help shape that and move it along. With that said, though, my positioning within the company is yes, from on a development, um, at that development stage, yes, 
be involved heavy in the creative, but once the project gets greenlit, it becomes more of a business um, role that I would take on to make sure that it's distributed properly, it's marketed properly, it's, you know, it's properly financed, etc., etc. Um, so to answer your question, the producing role involves a lot of creative, and I would rather be the person that, because we're so underrepresented in the producing function in the industry, uh, and I, when I say we, I mean people from the Global South, women, black women, women of color, people of color. I mean, you know, there's so many different boxes you could check in terms of underrepresentation. Mm-hmm. And the producers are the people making the, making the decisions, you know. Producers are the ones, they, we are the power brokers that, that really bring the resources and make the project or break the project from an infrastructural standpoint. And then the directors and all of the, you know, they are, they are the creative leads and they have to make sure that the project is, is, you know, attractive and viable and impactful. But in terms of making it happen, that's the job of the producer. And so I think that it's really important to stay on that side of it for me so that I could provide and unlock the opportunities for these creators and not want to become a creator myself, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mika, how can governments assist artists? I know that's a, a big question and it's been a big issue in the entire Caribbean, especially that, you know, many artists feel as if Governments take advantage of their work when it when it suits them. Like, oh, look at our great dash, you know, composer, producer, uh, painter. However, under normal circumstances, governments seem to turn a blind eye to artists. So in what ways can governments help uh, artists, especially in, in these parts of the world? Yeah, I think so. the government has a really huge role to play. I'll, I'll give you the example in terms of funding films through tax credits, um, that is a really important mechanism of film financing all over the world. Europe does a really good job of offering tax credits. And, you know, tax credits means that when you go and produce a project in that country, then you get a certain amount of tax credit that reduces the cost of the production, that offsets the cost of the production. So it's a form of of financing, right? Um, And so in Europe, you have really, really attractive tax credits. In Atlanta, built their film industry. Atlanta is now the number two film industry in the U.S., second to Hollywood. It's surpassed. It surpassed New York in terms of the number of films that are being produced out of there. And that's because they have these tax incentives that are very, very attractive. Vancouver um, did as well at one point, yeah? Canada is doing a lot of that as well, right? And so what, what, what I think the, in the Caribbean, um, and to a lesser extent, I think in Africa, they, they've done a great job, especially in Nigeria, they've done such a great job of developing an independent, very entrepreneurial film industry that now the government is begging the producers in Nigeria to participate, um, which is a, 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 nice, a nice dynamic for them. Um, 
in India, similarly, it's kind of come about through entrepreneurship and now the government is kind of... But but the problem, I think, that, that we have in the Caribbean especially is that our governments don't look at the creative industries as viable pillars of the economy. Oh. They, they don't look at it as viable pillars of diversification. And then when you couple that with the lack of investor climate of true entrepreneurship you know um startup capital type of industry like you 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 don't have that as well you don't have investors that want to come in on an equity level and are willing to take the risk that you would see in the tech industry for example in the u.s or even in in the film industry in other parts of the world so when you combine those two you have these creative entrepreneurs, which is what we are, who are not able to access the capital. And then you also have Trinidad or Anguilla or, you know, these countries not being competitive in, in terms of being able to attract international productions, right? Because they don't have the tax credits, um, the tax incentives on offer. Trinidad has made some strides with that, um, but it's still a drop in the pond, you know. There's no local appetite for investing in, in films um, or in the creative industries in general. I mean, I could extend that comment to, to music. I could extend it to, to carnival. I could extend it to so many aspects of the arts, right? To steel pan. <laughs> um, you know, that that is really, really a travesty because... I'll speak from the Trinidad perspective. And well, for the rest of the Caribbean, that's dependent on tourism. We are kind of single market economies, right? So, you know, outside of Trinidad is very heavy tourism. When tourism dries up, oh, we're in a recession. In Trinidad, the oil price goes down, we're in a recession. Mm -hmm. because, the, because the economy is not diversified. And these are really viable ways to strengthen these economies and the governments have not been serious about it for political reasons. Um, and, you know, they, they haven't really invested in it. So I think governments in, in these parts of the world have been abdicating their responsibilities and really leaving a lot of opportunity on the table. Wow. Just, just a mouthful. <laughs> I know I said a lot there, but yeah. No, 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 a lot of important stuff. <laughs> now, yes. I spoke to a filmmaker some time ago, and the person was saying that had they known that YouTube would have been what it is today, they would have embraced it earlier on. Um, oh. Like many filmmakers, uh, when YouTube first started, there was sort of a, um, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm, oh, my work is much, my work is worth so much more than just putting it out there on the internet. And the person said to me, they looked at Issa Rae and they said, oh, you know, I would never do that. And now look at Issa Rae today. Mm -hmm. uh, she's now into feature films, uh, way past even her HBO uh, show. And mm -hmm. so he said, you know, I, that's the one regret that I have that I lost 10 years by not putting my, my material on the internet. How important is it for artists to embrace change 
and specifically this new digital realm that we are we were already in but now we're really in it because of covid yeah i think it's critical um you know from the technological standpoint and people tend to think of the platforms when they think of digital which i think the example you use with isa is a is a great example but there are many other examples right of just putting the content on these platforms for free and allowing your audience to grow and then monetizing that audience right which is a very different model than what existed before but beyond the platforms and the distribution side of it you also now have the production side of it where the technology is uh galloping forward in terms of like right now you have a lot of studios even we are for one of the projects that we that we have in the pipeline we're looking at remote shooting right in the time mm. of covid and so staying up to date on these different technologies these different you know virtual production is 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 a reality now that we thought was 5 10 years away right vr was something people were just not some people are doing it but not really taking it as seriously those technologies are going to gallop forward and are going to continue to disrupt the landscape and so as a filmmaker or producer or even just a production company as a whole being on top of those things and even using your own processes to be one of the innovators is going to be critical to your survival um so yeah i mean i i think it's hugely important on the streaming side of it you know how netflix had kind of a monopoly on things <laughs> you know and now you have all these different streaming platforms Tons of platforms yeah that Zeus gives and everybody else <laughs> everybody you know that give that give so much opportunity now there's still the problem of access right you have people saying oh why don't you just put put your stuff up you know on HBO Max. Oh no, well I need an agent to then go to HBO. <laughs> and right. a lot of people don't realize that those are the gatekeepers um that you know a lot of most people don't have access to. Um but the more that that this happens like for example now during COVID, what we are being told by the agents that we're dealing with, they are saying that the the networks and the platforms are hungry for content because the demand for content has shot up because everybody's at home binge watching stuff and they have gaps in their programming and then when you bring in the whole black lives matter and kind of the you know diversity discourse they not they don't just have gaps in the programming from a volume standpoint but also the type of content that they're offering they have gaps there too so now they're scrambling to get content in right and so it's a really great opportunity for us from a distribution standpoint but i think people tend to forget the production side the digital production side of things that um is going to be more important now than ever yeah you you touch on something that is very confusing for a lot of people build your audience and then monetize a lot of people have problems making that leap from, you know, here's my free audience of 200,000. How do I then monetize that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think people, people have, people have challenges making that leap 
you mean from a perspective of of putting the con content out there to begin with to build the audience or after they've no, built after the audience built how it, to monetize? Like, how, how do I then skip over to making money from these all these people that I have? You know what I mean? Right, yeah. I mean, obviously, it, would, it depends a lot on the um, on the, the medium and the art form. But in general, once you have, once you've proven out a large audience, uh, brands are going to want to tap into that. So you you basically have to put yourself out there and get meetings with these these brands, investors, distributors to say. This is a cap captive audience that I not just I don't just own, but I understand this audience better than anybody else. That's an that's another component of it that's important. Analyzing your audience's behavior so that you could then speak to how is this audience going to help you leverage your brand, or how is this audience right for your platform? I think that is the language that maybe you know, a lot of content creators don't know how to speak mm -hmm. and really have to open up and bring on the expertise that they don't have or do their own research to figure out how, okay, what, what are the analytics that I need to do on this data that I'm collecting from this audience and how do I package that so that people will want to buy into that, whether it's sponsorship-wise, co-production-wise, um, financing-wise, distribution wise there's so many different at every stage of the pipeline of development of of content there are opportunities to monetize um at every single stage mika what are some of the challenges that you faced in starting a media company oh. <laughs> <laughs> we're the beginner um I think from my, my, you know, I came from another industry, right? I came from that corporate marketing consumer products background. I think a few things were challenging. First was being an outsider um, and not having gone to film school, you know, or worked on, on a film set as an intern carrying coffee, you know, you have all those all those stories, right? Like, oh yeah, you have to start in the mail room and then you move up and you become an agent. You have a lot of those stories in Hollywood, especially. Um, so coming from having built a career elsewhere and trying to, I see what my transferable skills are. I'm trying to leverage that into an industry that is very insular and that is very. Um, very network-based, very relationship-based. And as a result, the power structures are very entrenched in terms of who owns the capital, who owns the access. That was probably the most difficult aspect to crack into. Um, the other thing was, you know, just trying to basically sustain myself and my family while basically punting on a corporate marketing salary, you know, and all of that and self-financing this entire journey, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and now being at the point where, okay, 
we're starting to get traction. You know, we have co-productions going. We have, you know, agents are paying attention to us, etc. You know, that 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 will change. But I think like any other entrepreneur, like you bootstrap it, and that comes with that comes with a certain amount of sacrifice um, and certain impacts on just you as a person, right? Um, so I think those are probably the two biggest challenges. Um, and in some cases, are still there's still challenges, not to the same extent. Um, and, you know, again, we're making a lot of progress, but it never ends. <laughs> As a business owner, that never, it really never ends in terms of you having to sacrifice yourself and having to, you know, take the road that's traveled that most people wouldn't be comfortable with or have the risk tolerance um, to go in that direction. Got it. I like it. I like it. What advice would you have for younger people that want to enter the media space? What are some of the do's and don'ts? <laughs> hmm. I don't know if I'm the right person to ask this question. Let yeah, me see. I mean, you you <laughs> um, started a whole movement, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, what are the do's and don'ts? I would say the do's are to find, to stay true to your voice. Whatever is authentic to you is what you should be putting out into the world. Mm-hmm. Don't work on content that is not something, is something that you don't understand. And it doesn't mean that you could only make things that you know about. There are a lot of things that are new areas, like, you know, documentaries that we're doing that are areas that we didn't know about. But, in the event that you are speaking to a space that is not that you are not an indigenous member of that space, do your homework, bring on partners and you know even peers that understand that space very well, so that you could develop the authentic point of view. Um, faking it till you make it is something I would not recommend. It's something that the industry, in some ways particularly on the Hollywood side, a lot of people do that, but it catches up with them. The other thing I would say is don't cut corners. Um, Study your craft. It might look easy that people are putting things on YouTube, but, you know, everything that's out there is not quality. (laughs) And you want to stand out from the crowd and you want to be respected for your craft. And so that means studying it, listening to the podcast, going to school if you want to take the formal route. But even if you're not doing that, get the experience and get your legs under you and, and, and talk to people, understand people who, who are further ahead of you, who've done it, you know, learn from their experiences. Um, what else would I say? Save your money, be smart with your, your, your finances so that you can invest in your own content um, and have ownership in your own content, even if you own 10% of it. It, it, it gives you leverage. It gives you creative freedom. Um, and, oh, there's a big one. <laughs> Understand the legal processes in content creation. Mm. That's a big one. I would say most nine t- times out of 10 when projects fail, or when creators fail is because they weren't legally protected and they skipped those steps. Um, 
of due process, you know, it being thorough with the legal side of things, your agreements. If you have somebody shooting something with you, it might be your best friend from school, paper, some kind of MOU for yourselves so that you understand, okay, let's say we end up being an Isari and we make a ton of money from this YouTube series. How are we splitting this money, right? Who gets what credits, etc., etc. And you'll be surprised, people who've been in the industry for years don't want to be thorough with legal stuff and it it, it, it puts you it, it's a problem some of them are deliberately vague about it because they want to take advantage of you some of them it's just bad habits um so that would be a big a big a piece of advice that i've even learned the hard way to be honest <laughs> mm. the two schools of thought nowadays go to film school or, or, you know, for whatever media communications degree, or skip that part, save the money, and go go by trial by fire and YouTube. Hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which do you think? <laughs> and, of course, we're children of a certain era, so it was really, you know, beaten into our heads that formal education, formal education, formal education. But a lot of Gen Zers uh, seem to want to skip that part of it. Now, is formal education still worth it? Or should they, should people still go to school for, for media? Or should they just take on the, you know, let's try it out, let's see what happens, let's fail, and then let's watch YouTube? Which which approach is best? Honestly, I think, I think both are important. I think regardless of if you go into a formal education track, you should still be producing your own content as you go along. Whatever aspect of production that is, right? So if you're a writer, you should be writing while you're in school. If you're a, direct, if you're a director or, deep, or cinematographer, if that's what you want to be, you should be going and shooting your little mini films, right? Even if you're in school. The formal education aspect of it is beneficial from the perspective of it allows you to study the industry and get a much um, a much broader view of how this industry works, how it how it's come about, and it puts you in a position to 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 make certain choices and decisions and to think strategically, as opposed to just being an executor. Um, but with that said, it really does depend on, yeah, so it depends on what your ultimate goal is. If, if your ultimate goal is to work in the studio system as, a, as an executive in, um, you know, at Netflix, for example, right, um, then the formal education route makes sense because that's where they recruit from these top film schools or from these top business schools, right? Um, with that said, though, having your own kind of practical proof of work that you've done is going to be the difference maker between you and anybody else that you're in school with. Um, and choosing a program that allows you to, to put practical work out is really important. Um, you know, but the flip side is if you already have some skills and you know that you want you have the, the capital you save money you're willing to put your money into producing your own things you could go ahead and do it that way too but at some point 
you may need to go and get some formal education to strengthen those skills, right? And to to put you in the networks that are that are important to move ahead in the industry. So it really does depend on where you know what the end goal is. But I my answer to that will be that both are important. Mika, who or what inspires you? Hmm. Um. Huh, that's a good question. It kind of changes. I would say, um, well, I'm a person of faith. So a lot of my inspiration comes from God, really. Um, I don't think that if I did not have this spiritual grounding, that I would be able to last this long <laughs> in this on this path. Um, because on paper, there are a lot of things that, that a lot of decisions that I made that didn't make sense. But they they ended up making sense anyway um, in practice. Um, and it was only from that discernment and that spiritual kind of connection that I think I was able to really be guided in that direction. Um, I think beyond that, I get inspired a lot by my team drives me a lot. Um, they've been on this journey with me and they really believe in the mission and vision of the company and seeing them grow is really rewarding. Um, and I think I'm, I'm inspired by, if I were to pick public figure type people, Marcus Garvey and his vision for Pan-Africanism and what he did with the Black Star Line. Mm-hmm. I see media as a new Black Star Line, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people like Tyler Perry, who built his own independent media empire. Um, you know, some people love his work, some people hate his work, but you can't knock what he's done. Um, he's built his audience, he knows his audience really well, and he leveraged that audience, and he decided to do it independent of the Hollywood system, and now, they, now they're knocking on his door, right? Um, I mean, the list goes on. There's so many different creators that, that inspire me, um, you know, it's, it's hard to narrow it down. Um, but in, so from the film side of it, those are some that, that come to mind. Some people that are really inspiring. All right. What's your next big move? I know you have the podcast going. You're doing all this stuff. But is there something else that, that, that you can tease? Tease? No, I, can't, I don't know if there's anything else we could tease. We have a... We have a <laughs> We have a couple of big projects um, on the unscripted side that we're working on um, that will be pretty major. One is about basketball in Africa. Another one is about um, minorities in winter sports. That's all I could say about those, but those will be major projects um, that, that we're really excited about. Yeah, and your, then oh, oh sorry. sorry, you go ahead. No, no, I was gonna say on the editorial side of it, you know, beyond the podcast, we want to create other assets, um, you know, grow that platform. Um, so we'll be launching a newsletter soon, we'll be launching a website that's kind of a home for news and other things around this, this, this world of content. Mm-hmm. What is your ultimate goal, Mika? When you're eighty-something years old on a rocking chair, sitting back, what is that thing that you you you'll be most proud of that you would have accomplished? 
I think I want to be able to, at that point in time, be able to look at a look at a very different film in the film and TV industry that exists than what exists now. Um, and particularly see those, see that manifested on the local level in these different markets where you have independent industries that are hiring people and people are making content and they're building careers and they're being recognized for it. Um, and you know that 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 will be really important because I think it has an economic part to play in how our people develop. Um, that is really critical. Um, I I want to see that that be you know uh, I want to see the, the the economy of global film really resonate and impact the lives of people in the Caribbean and in these these other spaces that that we represent mm-hmm. now mika this is a segment i call the planet is yours i jump yes. on I, I strap on my spacesuit and i jump into the atmosphere whatever you would like to tell the audience go ahead <laughs> it could be and this this could be from like what tell them oh help, you can tell them any, you can one. give them a cake recipe if you want to whatever you want to tell them <laughs> Any advice for life? Anything? Advice for life. Um, I mean, I I think it's a very simple thing, which is keep going. I think right now, a lot of people feel paralyzed by fear, by uncertainty. Um, And in times of uncertainty, what you do is you just keep going. You just put one foot in front of the other every day perfect your craft, love the people around you, and just keep going. I mean, I think this is a time where I'd love to say something super funny and upbeat, but, you know, this is, <laughs> this, is a, this is a time where I'm very sensitive to people, what everybody's going through, you know? Um, and, and, yeah, it's just that simple piece of advice for life that has really seen me through some tough times. Mm-hmm. Just keep going. Tell us how we can get in contact with you or Soleil. Where, where can we follow your company? Yeah, um, so our website is www.soleilentertainment.com and our Instagram is soleil.space um, and the podcast is available on I, um, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Well, wherever podcasts are found, but we, we, we definitely, at minimum, we're, we're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Um, you can email me at mika at soleilentertainment.com um, or through the website. You know, there's a contact us button that you could submit emails to us. Um, but yeah, those, those will be the few ways to contact us. Mika Cooper Edwards, I cannot thank you enough for joining me today. Thank you. It was good to be here. And nice to nice to talk to you finally. Yes, yes. 
after after knowing so many people in common, now we know each other, so that's great. Exactly. After being at Howard at the same time and not crossing paths. Exactly. Not coming so down the hill. Not coming down the hill or up the hill. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Thank you nice so much. to meet you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planet 30. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at OnPlanet30. Like us on Facebook.com slash Planet30. Our email address is OnPlanet30 at gmail.com. That's O-N-P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y at gmail.com. For more information about Planet 30, visit our website, Planet30.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y dot com. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30.